Hi there, my name is not Terry, and I'm not even an animator. But welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. How was that? That was good. Keep going. Great, great. Moving on, next cut. It's episode 100, and we're going to switch things up today. Today, the interviewer becomes the interviewee. That's right, it's time to dive into the mind of your host, Terry Ibel. How do you feel about this? This is good. Do you want to say who you are, maybe? Ben. I'm Ben. Ben. Uh, We're moving on. What? (laughs) Okay. Mystery sells. Uh, Okay, it's episode 100. This is a big milestone for you and your listeners who've been along for the ride. How are you feeling about the big 100? I'm I'm pretty excited. I also... I feel I can't believe I've got this far, to be honest. A hundred interviews is pretty crazy, but I feel pretty proud. And for some reason, I feel really nervous on being interviewed myself. (laughs) It is weird. You have to like let go. I'm going to put you through the ringer. Okay. All right. Go. So I'm thinking to start with, I want to take it all the way back to the beginning. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how you first fell in love with stop motion animation. Well, Ben, um, let's, let's roll it back. So I was already very much influenced by things like Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run and James and the Giant Peach that I grew up watching. And just as kind of like at the same time, I, I was just had a hobby of like crafting things. I had a hot glue gun and I was just making little crafts in my bedroom by myself all the time. And then Um, When my grandfather passed, my brother and I, when we were gutting his apartment, found an old camcorder and we started playing around with it and realized that we could make short stop motion videos. So we started off by making some little Legomations and then um, it just sparked from there. It was like my crafting hobby and now narrative storytelling through film kind of came together and I discovered this this like self-expression love that I had for stop motion and... Yeah, ever since I've just been in love with it. And in terms of like techniques, uh, where were you kind of figuring out or how are you figuring out how to actually to do animation to set up a scene? Uh, <laughs> from, our, from our minds, I guess there was no there was no f- research or training. We were just dicking around, really. It was actually kind of fun because this camcorder, we discovered that it could take one frame, like one picture at a time, which was great for stop motion. But um, the problem was that it would take one picture and rewind two frames. Uh, It was just built into the functionality of this camcorder. So essentially when we were creating stop motions, we had to film everything backwards because every time we took a picture, it would rewind two frames. And so conceptually we had to plan, like if a Lego guy was walking, he had to actually have walk backwards and then we could play it back in the little viewfinder to see him walking forwards. So we were just, playing around and having fun that's how it all began so then after putting in all that time and experimenting and kind of falling love falling in love with this art form um what then made you decide to pursue a business in career (laughs) a business in career a career in business (laughs) a career in business instead of pursuing a career in animation good question um (laughs) I don't know. I I always just saw it as like this fun little hobby. It was never, it never felt like a serious career thing to me, really. I mean, I I saw these movies and things, but I never grasped that I could do that. And 
like i don't know i grew up in waterloo which is not a small town but like there's no film industry there's no animation industry sure i was making these little animations and made a few little short films in high school um actually had a film teacher who was like very much supportive of of me pursuing film and animation but i just didn't take it seriously at all and i wanted i wanted a job that I could be self-sufficient and stable and feel safe in. And so business just kind of felt like the most viable option. So I went to business school and I kind of put this big blocked wall up on stop motion. I should also say that I also reached out to every single stop motion agency by email as I could coming out of high school with my portfolio. At that point, I'd made something like 60 short animations i made a couple of i made two three minute films and a 10 minute film all of which won awards in like local film competitions in high school and whatever and that was pretty cool um and so i sent out like a demo reel to like every stop motion uh studio agency i could i could find on the internet back in like the early 2000s in toronto in the u.s and i didn't really get any responses <laughs> i got a couple and they were just like cool there's we don't have any opportunities right now and so that was really discouraging to me actually as i was going into business school i put up this big mental wall that said to myself stop motion in art is not a career that i can pursue um and so i just stopped doing any stop motion um as i was pursuing business school and then later on when i got a job in business and it's funny because i was actually exporting my creativity in different ways like I wrote a novel I was like sculpting and painting because I had this thing inside of me that I really wanted to get out and it kept saying like it kept knocking on the stop motion wall being like can I come out of stop motion I'd be like no you're not allowed so then I was doing all these other creative things but not feeling totally satisfied with them because I always had that I wish I could be doing stop motion at the heart is this even answering your question anymore yeah, yeah, I'm just that makes sense it's okay kind of that internal battle I think that's a kind of a common struggle for young people that have a passion for art um, because I think in this time in this society oftentimes we feel like art is maybe a less secure career is that fair to say yeah it's, it's more of a risk yeah I mean well definitely it is more of a risk there's there's like established society which is run by like nine to five jobs in different industries and then there's like, obviously art can be an, is an industry too, but pursuing uh, such a niche art like stop motion in Canada, for instance, is such like a rare and niche thing. It's not even, it's, it's really hard to build a career in that versus like taking your average nine to five job. So yeah, I think, especially from all the interviews I've done, a lot of people did not have support from their family or their friends or their peers in going and pursuing something in animation, whereas some people uh, did. And I feel that um those I feel those people are very fortunate and I didn't have that myself and um yeah it's so it's I mean since I've started this career into animation it's been scary because like I left a stable like benefits uh can I I can stay there forever job and retire to go into something that I had have no idea about and I'm starting to learn about now so let's talk about that so it was 2018 what inspired you to finally take that leap and quit your business job or your business career, which was going quite well, in order to pursue an animation career? Yeah, I mean, so I was the head of SEO, head of search engine optimization at Wild a company called Wild Apricot. It makes software for nonprofits in the U.S. And um, things were going well. And 
so I started looking at my future goals and what I would consider success. I was like, these are the monetary things I want to achieve. These are like the personal things, health, relationships, etc. And it, as, as I kept like digging into my career, it never felt satisfied because I, I had kind of a path of what I wanted to achieve in business. And when I imagined myself achieving those things, I just never, it never felt good. And so I started to really explore why. And that led me to question like, is this the right career for me? And at the same time, I was also doing this watercolor comic every single day for 365 days in a row, uh, starring a little stick figure egg and a mouse <laughs> that go into space. The perfect combo. <laughs> and I was getting so much satisfaction out of that, just like waking up at six in the morning to like watercolor for an hour before I got to work. And so that led me down a path to explore this creative side of me that I I felt was giving me more satisfaction than my career. So there was a lot of like mixed up emotions and thoughts in my mind at that point. And the instigating moment was I reached out to somebody who worked at a studio in Toronto, a film studio in Toronto. Um, it was called, it's still around Toonbox Entertainment. And uh, I just asked them like, hey, how did you get into this career? And if possible, can I just come by and see what it's like at this studio? And, and this person, uh, she was amazing. She gave me her whole story. Uh, she allowed me to come to the studio. She got the HR people to like approve it. And I got a little tour and it was just so eye opening to, I, I forced everybody. There was like, I don't know, 50 people working that day. And I forced every single person to like sit down and talk with me while they were working. I don't think everybody was too happy with it, but I was just soaking up everything that they said, because I, I just never realized that there are thousands of people in the city that I live in in an animation career there's people whose jobs they're like creating concept art all day there's people doing storyboards all day and it just it was so eye-opening and emotionally impactful and i realized when i came home that day i I don't know if you remember i was like i was sitting on the couch and it was like this swelling moment and i just broke down crying because all these (laughs) i might cry again now all these moments throughout my life that i put up walls against being that and doing that thing that I love doing and it wasn't really stop motion it was just expressing myself in a creative narrative way with the stories I wanted to tell in the art I wanted to do it all kind of came back to me at once all those moments that somebody said hey why don't you do this as a profession or hey I like this art you've done and all the times that I just like waited for somebody to just notice that I was creative and give me a Hollywood job which does not happen kind of came to me in a moment I felt like it was this rare instance that I just got to look at myself from like a third person perspective and be like, Terry is an animator and this is what he should be doing with his life. And when that happened, I just knew, <laughs> I don't know why I'm going to start crying. <laughs> this is good. Don't cry on the mic. <laughs> I just knew this is, I had to make this huge change in my life. And it was, it was really tough because, you know, I had a almost 10 year career in business. I built my life around this, you know, like my security, my finances, my peers, my friends, the skills that I gained, my knowledge, the way I saw the world, etc., all had to drastically change to start this new journey that I was going to go on. So as I went through, as I watched you go through this change, um, one of the things I remember was this kind of profound fear that you had um, about kind of coming to this realization yourself and also sharing this realization with other people. So can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, the way that the people around you responded 
when you told them that you'd made this decision to pursue animation? Um, well, to answer the first part, it was very scary because, you know, I, I was 30, I think I was, what, 30, 31 when I decided this. And so everybody in my life had known me as like this guy pursuing a, a business career and like my relationships and friendships and things were built around this. And I also had a really close, I still do, um, relationship with my coworkers. We were like a really tight team. And I didn't tell them about this because, you know, it was it was very scary. I didn't want them to think that I was going to do less of a job at work or that this was going to change things. So it was extremely stressful for about a year before I actually decided to leave because I was trying to keep things on the DL. But when I told everybody, everybody was so supportive and people were like, we were just waiting for you to do this, which was really strange to to like hear back when somebody you've known for many years like even my brother he was like we were just waiting for you to pursue like an animation career and you're finally doing it and it, it feels weird to get that feedback <laughs> but everybody was amazingly supportive and uh i'm very fortunate to have the people in my life that i do yeah honestly i think i think in a way everybody has that internal struggle in a different in a different way like everybody has that change that they want to make, but they're too scared to make. So honestly, I'm I'm just, I'm proud of you. Thank you. So when you finally got your Sheridan acceptance letter, how did that feel? Um, well, first of all, I uh, not first of all, uh, I didn't believe it. <laughs> I actually had to like log out and check back in because I thought it was a mistake. I I didn't think I got in at all. But when I when I realized it wasn't a mistake, I guess uh, it felt amazing. It felt like this great big check mark of positive affirmation that I was on the right path. Because besides just saying to myself that I can do this, I had no external validation other than people being like, "Great, you're you're like pursuing this path." I had no external validation for like the skills that I had developed or from an actual professional standpoint saying that this is something that you can pursue and you're at, you're at a level that you can pursue this uh, at least at, at um, to come and study. So it was amazing and scary because also that acceptance letter, I knew I had to quit my job once I got it. <laughs> and uh, we had to move and uh, everything changed again at that point. So it was amazing and scary. And then now that you've been through the Sheridan experience, what would you say you've gotten from Sheridan that you wouldn't have gotten by pursuing animation in a, in a different way? Uh, a lot. I, uh, there's a lot of... Um, so everybody I've talked to has a completely different path of getting into the field. Some people, they go to school. Some people learn on their own, etc. Um, what Sheridan gave me was this defined path into the industry that um, let me be part of a bigger community of people like myself. So if I was pursuing this on my own, I don't think I would have learned as much because there's so much support and the community that's built at Sheridan with your fellow classmates. You can talk to your profs who have been in the industry and can answer any question. They, they know what it's like and they give you confidence and feedback uh, that you're on the right path and how to do better. And then just tell you what the industry is like, like what to expect, how to put together a portfolio, what jobs are like. So just a lot of, I guess in, in short, I don't want to ramble, but in short, this amazing community of support and feedback that I feel like I would have, I learned much more 
just walking around and seeing how other people were doing things and being stuck on doing things on my own and um, kind of the knowledge of the industry and the feedback from the professors and on all that. And what's the vibe like in terms of like your classmates, the community? Vibe like, I don't know. Everybody's super supportive. (laughs) It's like this. It's like school is like this extremely stressful place that everybody's in the same boat and we all know how tough it is and how hard it is and how much anxiety is full fills our lives that we just get each other and we're all in this together so it it feels you feel like you're part of something i guess is that is that a vibe i would say that's pretty vibey um so then do you have any advice for people that are considering going to sheridan people that are scared of the application process or don't know what to expect yeah um so it is scary it's hard to know what to expect especially if you don't know anybody who has gone to sheridan um or or any of your peers or whatever i would say even though it's it's like counter advice to what most people say i'd say put all your eggs in one basket so that you don't have a backup plan because i've i've seen a lot of people have a backup plan to get into sheridan and then they don't put everything they could have into getting into sheridan if that makes sense so for me my only plan was i have to go here it's the next step on the path this has to happen for me so like my actions followed that desire and so i hired a tutor that helped me out every single week i went and researched every single sheridan portfolio i could find online i attended life drawing classes at the local art institute in toronto i uh, watched youtube videos every single night i practiced every single day knowing doing all that and if i didn't get in i think i would still be okay with it because i would know i would look back and know that there's nothing more i could have possibly done um except spend more time So I would say put all your eggs in one basket and put everything you have into it because this is who you are if you've decided that you want to do this and why not go full steam ahead instead of having kind of some backup plan. And, and I guess there's some, uh, something in that too, because like if I pursued Sheridan out of high school with the mentality and the resources that I had back then, I don't think I would have been successful in getting in. And if I did, I wouldn't have been able to go through the program so it also says something to where you are in your point of life too so if you feel that this is the time for you to commit then go for it if you feel that you know this is a time for you to i don't know step back do something else or take like a side quest in your career then then i think there's also that judgment you have to make so talking about stress because i know you mentioned once you got into sheridan um, that there's kind of this like chaos of school and, and deadlines and things. But what struck me when you were in school is right in the middle of all that stress, you decided it was time to start a podcast side hustle. So let's talk about what made you decide to start the podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so I started the podcast before school got too stressful, thankfully. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have. I went to the Toronto Animated uh, Arts Arts and Animation Film International Festival, TAFFY, in Toronto in October of 2018. So I started school in September, went to this animation festival in October, and I just decided I wanted to go because in my business career, going to conferences and festivals is like a great way to meet people and to learn new skills and things that you can bring back with you to your job. So I just I decided to go 
but while I was there, I quickly realized that I have, I don't know anybody here. Uh, there's no reason for anybody to know me here because I'm uh, a, a student with no work. And other than me going up to somebody and saying, hey, I really like your stuff. How can I learn from you? Which I still think is a great conversation starter. It would just end there. So I knew from my, uh, when I was at uh, Wild Apricot, my past business job, I would just hop on a call with somebody in a similar position to me at a different company and just share strategies and uh, figure out what they did and kind of interview them so I could take their strategies back to Wild Apricot and increase our business, whatever. And so that's where kind of the podcasting idea came from. And one of my coworkers, Shiv, I was chatting with him in the festival being like, I don't know anybody. And he's like, now's the perfect time to start a podcast. Just walk up to the speaker and say, do you want to be on a podcast? And so he really encouraged me to do this. And so Fred Seibert, he was the creator of uh, Frederator. Uh, I believe he's not there anymore. He started a different project. He was also the president of Hanna-Barbana back in the day. And his like claim to fame from Frederator is, um, well, Adventure Time as well as some other shows. So he was speaking. And after he finished speaking, I just walked up to him. I waited in line. I said, hi, my name is Terry. I'm starting a new animation podcast. Do you want to be on it? And he said, sure. Handed me his business card. And that's how the podcast started. I just walked up to every speaker afterwards, got a similar yes answer. Not all of them followed up with me, but I had two people follow up with me. And it was those two people, Fred Cyber and Brett Jubinville, who were my first two episodes. And I just continued every single week afterwards. Nice. Walking straight up to Fred Cyber is a bold move. I guess so. He's a really nice guy. He's fantastic. So would you say then there's there's a little bit of an element of like faking it till you make it at the start? Yes, but I I, I mean, 100%. Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I mean, I had some idea what I was doing, but I didn't run a public podcast. But also just to be genuine, like Fred knew that I didn't have a podcast. I didn't want to I didn't want to fake him out and try to like put on this ego and be like, oh, I have this great podcast. Come on. I was just like, hey. Uh, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. It'd be great to interview you. So I think fake it till you make it, but be genuine, be yourself. And then after Taffy, how did you then go about finding additional people to keep growing it? At the start, uh, it was just, it was, it was difficult. It was just cold calling. Basically, I would just email slash tweet slash Instagram DM slash LinkedIn DM every single person that I could find that had animated thing in their profile because i was new to the industry i didn't know who people were i didn't know what jobs were and so i just reach out randomly to everybody um and i had some success enough to keep me going every single week but i also reached out to like i don't know hundreds and maybe like 20 percent of them responded hundreds is an overstatement but after after i got things going and guests had come on then i started to name drop like I had like, uh, obviously Fred Seibert, um, Ryan Quincy, who's South Park producer, et cetera on. And so when I started to name drop, I think that helped a little bit. And now the podcast just runs itself basically, <laughs> um, because I have so many connections now, people will either reach out to me and say, Hey, can you interview this person? Or I have somebody you'd like to meet or people just find even listeners, um, call or call in, email me and say, Hey, this is. Uh, I have this great story about this. Can I come on the podcast? So I still reach out to people, but it's less now and it's not so anxiety inducing because I've done this a hundred times. Much less anxiety inducing than letting someone else take over your podcast. 
You mean you, Ben, <laughs> yes. who remains a mystery? It is I, Ben. Um, okay. Yes. So, having made all those connections, then, would you say that there have been a lot of other kind of opportunities that have bloomed from just making those connect- connections through the podcast? Yeah, I mean, well, definitely. Uh, I've, uh, I've specifically, other than just having these connections, there's the First of all, just learning about what the industry is about, what positions are like day to day, because there's a big difference between saying I want to be a concept artist and actually knowing what the day to day of that entails. And when I hear the day to day, I'm like, oh, maybe this isn't actually what I want to do. I want to do something a little bit different. So there's that. Um, Then, you know, whenever I have a chat, I also have a chat off line with these people who ask for advice in what I'm doing. I say, hey, is this a smart move to me to do this? Or can you give me some feedback on this piece that I'm doing right now? And so, um, for instance, a lot of the stop motion that I did had very specific feedback from Ben, but also people in the industry who I had met through the podcast could review something and be like, hey, for this next shot, maybe it'd be cool to do this. Or here's a here's a quick tip to do this. Um, or like, you know, your weight looks a little off in this one. Try it differently this time so there's the feedback there's the mentorship and also job opportunities which has been a really cool people will be like hey terry i have this thing would you like to be involved in it and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't but uh i'd say just having connections is a good thing and the podcast is a way that's been incredible for me personally also um as you know i'm i have the silly duck wizard as a as like a pitch bible and i'm i'm trying to get it made into a show uh through the podcast i was able to get a lot more connections to places like hbo and netflix and disney so i've been able to pitch them personally because i knew somebody that i had on my podcast that saw my idea and was like hey this is really cool i'm gonna put you in touch with so-and-so okay now let's talk about cash flow so (laughs) sorry Let's just dive right into that awkward uh, topic. So I noticed some of your episodes are sponsored. So can you tell people who are kind of aspiring podcast uh, hosts, maybe how you go about finding sponsors, how you go about pitching sponsors, stuff like that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't make a lot of money on the podcast. It basically just covers the hosting fees of having the podcast. Uh, Like I, I have SoundCloud as the host and that uh, distributes to all the other platforms like iTunes, et cetera, just um, as well as the website, et cetera. So how I got sponsors at the beginning was I just reached, I just went to Google and typed in animation like classes and reached out to every single online animation school and physical animation school. Um, and that way, a couple people responded and said, sure, I'd love to sponsor. A couple sponsors have come to me after seeing the podcast in various places um, so I don't have all episodes sponsored. Uh, it's not a huge goal of mine. It's more like if this happens, this is a really great thing. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, nice. I don't know what to say. That's good. So it, so it covers the costs and that's kind of, that yeah, idea. it covers the costs and it's, oh, you also asked how I reach out to them. I mean, I, I have some kind of a sales sheet that tells you exactly the stats of the podcast, how many people have listened to it. If they want to know the demographics, you know, I can get that information from like Spotify, iTunes, you know, male versus female, age, whatever. I have all that info if people want to see it. Nobody's really asked me for it except for the amount of listens overall. Um, and I would say, so the podcast has been steadily increasing in listens, which is really great. And that's really helped the sponsors as well when I, they see those numbers. 
All right, numbers are exciting, but it's time to talk about my personal favorite topic, clearly the most important topic of this podcast, which is the silly duck wizard. So can you tell me what inspired you to create this delightful wizard and his little duckos? Uh, <laughs> um, what inspired me? Uh, oh, gosh. Also, if you haven't seen the silly duck wizard, please pause this and run to YouTube. Run to YouTube with your hand on your mouse. Yes. Um, oh, gosh. There, I don't know how to answer this. What inspired me? I had um, Chris Walsh, the coordinator, uh, uh, past coordinator of Sheridan's animation program, very much encouraged me to use the, the school's stop motion professional studio over the summer. And so that's a big reason why I had access to those resources, because he specifically encouraged me to lay down how it would happen, etc., um, what inspired me to make it is I wanted to create something that looked professional and that I could share with the stop motion people that were in the industry that I was connecting with. So I could say, hey, um, I, I can make something that looks at a professional scale. And then the story, the characters, etc. I just wanted to have fun with myself. I just thought, you know, I'm going to, well, what did I do? I like sat on the couch. And like 30 seconds, I'd drawn this stupid little wizard in a couple sentences for him to say. And I was like, this is what I'm going to make. And then it, um, the voice actor, I had just, his name is uh, Davey uh, Swapaz, as he's known online. Davey Swapaz, he's infamous for doing a, a, a Adventure Time episode and also his Turbo Fantasy series on YouTube. And Birdie and Frankie's knees buckling. Please look that up as well. Um so I love his voice and his voice acting. And I asked him if he would ever do anything for me. And he's like, yeah, just send me something like today. So that's why I sat on my couch and made up the idea. And then I had the rest of the summer. And so I just filled that time, I guess. I went way overboard with the idea. I spent like three weeks crafting everything, like a whole week on just getting the wizard's eyes the right size. And it was it was dollar store stuff, right? Like that yeah, was, it was all just dollar store stuff. I remember the idea too because I remember sitting here and you said, "I was like, okay, what is the brilliant plan?" And you said, "A wizard with a bunch of ducks, and all he can do are duck spells." And I was like, "Great, excellent. That's very logical." I don't think you liked the idea. <laughs> I didn't. Well, I liked it better than the other idea. Well, it was horse related. Don't tell them that I saw. Yeah, the other idea was you liked it better than the horses one. Yeah. Well, there's okay. So I came up with two ideas. Um, the second one has yet to be made. I'm gonna have to make it at some point. But it's starring. I love it. I think it's better than the silly duck wizard. What was it? <laughs> Spoil it. Tell it. No, I'm not going to because it'll come out one day. Um, so yeah, it just. I don't. What was the question again? What are we talking about? I'm not even sure anymore. So we'll just move on. The plan. What was the plan when you created the silly duck wizard? Where did you see it going? Where did you hope it would go? My plan was. Um, so I have a YouTube channel, Terry Mation. I don't know if you've seen it, but it has all my mo uh, a good chunk of my old claymations from when I was in high school. I, I made like something like over 50 or 60 and there's probably like a couple dozen on there not all of them are online and my plan was just to put it on my youtube channel and like all the like old subscribers that i had i think i had a thousand subscribers all my old subscribers would just see that i made something new and it'd be fun um it was just something that i wanted to share with the people and be like look i made over the summer i didn't plan on it becoming a thing uh so i didn't have a plan my plan was just 
create something that looks professional for my portfolio. And maybe when I like bring somebody on from the stop motion world on my podcast, it can be like, look at this thing I made and give me some tips. So that's it. And it, and it did catch on. I think in the first, it was a, a week or so, right? You had about 200,000. In the first day, you had 200,000 hits, which is, which is exciting. I remember that time very well. Um, beyond that, you also won two pitch competitions. Why do you think that the Silly Duck Wizard uh, seems to connect with people so well as a concept? Uh, I think it's an amalgamation of things. I think at the root, it's just very charming. It's stop motion, which is nostalgic for a lot of people, and it's it stands out as very different. Um, if you go to an animation film festival, 99% of what you're going to see is CG and 2D, and there's not much stop motion, so I think it stands out then. But I also just think the character itself is such a whimsical, complete thing that just it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's just in my mind, it's just this thing that exists. And there's so much more of it that exists that I want to create into a show. It's hard for me to explain, I guess. It's, it's been an interesting journey as I've turned this into pitches because it, it forces me to clarify things when my way of sharing ideas is just to make it and show you versus like explain it on a piece of paper. So I think when somebody sees it, they look at it and it's this thing that exists and it, it just is. And it's like complete and it's cute and funny it's short it's in and out it's stop motion there's not much going on it's wiggly i think it's just a thing (laughs) so that's it the key to success is wiggliness right yeah that's fair to say um so this is kind of your first foray into pitching uh what would you say this has taught you about the pitching experience oh my goodness so much i had okay so I had no idea what pitching is like. And yes, I've done so much research on pitching, how to put together a pitch Bible, et cetera. And I kind of took all that knowledge and said, I want to do this in my own way. So my first pitch, I did not create a Bible at all. I just drew my pitch in pictures with little labels. And I was like, this is him. This is a little castle he lives in. These are things he says. And I tried to create it as kind of you read the pitch as a picture story so that it was an experience for you. And, and Uh, that got me into the first pitch competition. And then, um, oh gosh, there's so much in my mind right now. I don't know where to start. (laughs) What would you say is like the main advice you'd give to someone that's about to give their first pitch? If you're about to give your first pitch for the first time, you've done it wrong. You need to give your pitch 500 times before you give it to your first time. (laughs) So for my first pitch, I... Uh, it had to be five minutes exactly. And I practiced it by myself. I practiced it with my brother. I practiced it with you probably, I don't know, 20 times. And then I practiced it by myself like 50 times over. Um, because you only have a couple minutes to come across with this very clear concept to somebody that should not leave them with the wrong questions. The wrong questions being like, I don't know about this, what's going on. The right questions are, uh, how does this character interact when this happens or, how does this world get bigger? You want to create something that is so clear to somebody that they can start imagining the show in their minds themselves. It builds itself for them. So in order to do that, you need so much feedback because an idea in your mind can be cluttered when you put it onto paper in somebody else's world. Um, so there's that. And I would also say, do it in the style that you're best at. I've seen a lot of pitches and read a lot of pitches that are just 
created in a format, you'll find it online, like do it in this format, fill in these blanks, and that's fine, but you need to put yourself in this because you bring something to the table that's unique to you versus this is a pitch in a format. So for me, even though I did all that pitch format stuff with the final pitch, I actually had no words at all. I drew everything out in a storybook and then told my pitch as a storybook because I wanted it to feel like you were experiencing this story versus here are the bullet points on who the character is. Here are the bullet points on the world, et cetera. So if you can do that, go for it. If you are more about uh, you know, doing those bullet points and you're really great at that, do it that way. I'd say do it in your own way. I think that's good advice. Just pour yourself into it. And I think people can tell if you're excited about it or if you're not. I mean, if you're not excited about it, why would they get excited about it, right? Yeah. And one last thing is... Um, don't, you don't have to know all the answers. One of my big mistakes that I kind of look back and cringe at is when people would ask me, like the judges would ask me questions afterwards, I would try to come up with an answer on the spot. And that would just make me look like I was trying to come up with an answer on the spot. And it's totally okay to be like, you know what? That's a good question. I don't have that figured out yet, but that's something to develop and explore. And that just, you know, confirms that you're confident about this idea and that you don't have everything figured out. And that's okay because you're pitching an idea. You're not telling a Wikipedia article of something that's already happened. So where is the silly duck wizard now? What's next for him? Uh, the world. Um, <clears throat> so the silly duck wizard, uh, I signed an option agreement last late last year in the fall. And currently we are trying to get some broadcasters on board to get this project greenlit, which is really exciting. So the next steps would be, to uh if you're a broadcaster listening to this get in touch with me and uh help green light this project so it can get on tv <laughs> and where did that option come from how did how did you fall upon this so i've been pitching the silly duck wizard to every studio that i can get my hands on as i said before netflix etc but as part of the ottawa international animation festival i think i mixed up the words there um if you're in the pitch competition, you get partnered with a mentor who has experience creating shows. I was partnered with a wonderful woman named Julie Stewart, who is absolutely phenomenal in helping me out and understanding what was going on and getting my pitch to the next level. But also you you get to be part of uh, this fast round of pitches where basically all these uh, production companies, studios, broadcasters um, get put into this kind of like draw connection thing with creators and you get 15 minutes to pitch your idea and to this person, and that's it. So uh, through that, I got to pitch to Disney, TVO, BBC, et cetera, and um, the current production company that I ended up signing with. And so when I pitched to them, they got the idea right away. They were super interested in it, and they said, let's take this to the next level and figure out how we can get an option deal, and then et cetera, et cetera. So through that um, round of pitching where people are specifically looking to buy things, that is how I got the connection. So it was a long journey of, you know, I had been pitching for a long time, uh, working really hard to get this in front of different places. I ended up getting in front of the Ottawa Festival. And through that, I went through a pitching experience. And then through that, I met this producer. And through that, that ended up signing an option. So it's a long, it's a long journey. It's been two years almost. And I think one thing I really want to talk about is... Um, Aside from the success of, of signing an option agreement, which is very exciting, how did it feel prior to that when you were faced with 
several rounds of rejection. What's that experience like when you when you pitch and you don't get an option agreement? And how did you kind of grow from that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's always disappointing when somebody doesn't uh, think it's a good idea that suits their business model. Because from my perspective, I'm like, this is a great idea. You want this. But from their perspective, they're thinking about like risk levels. Does this fit the audience we want? Does this fit our core competencies? Um, like when I pitch TVO, they're like, I'm sorry, but we don't do anything with magic involved. We're more about education. I'm like, that's that's fine, but it's still disappointing. <laughs> um, so it just, it even though it's disappointing and it's such a grind because you have to find somebody that connects with and it matches. It helped me learn more about the animation industry in general and uh, what specific things different broadcasters or studios or whatnot are actually looking for versus I have a great, amazing idea. Everybody's going to want it. Well, no, there's maybe one specific studio out there who works with this type of stuff. Like maybe um, like the Silly Duck Wizard is kind of unique. It's short format, like five minutes. It's stop motion. Not a lot of people do stop motion. It it's like highly silly without uh, like a lot of preschool shows have a very grounded educational level in them where you're learning shapes and numbers and things. And it's not that it's like silliness for the sake of silliness and about being positive and like finding solutions, etc. So it's it's more about learning who you can work with and what different things the industry wants. So now that if I were to create a show from scratch and I would want to make it for TVO, I would start with what are they actually looking for that I can create that can connect from inside of me to create something for them. Not here's the thing I created. Now I'm just going to pitch everybody. All right. Nice. I think, I think that's important too. It's important to stay true to your idea, but also realize that you're in an industry where you do kind of have to adapt or you have to pivot to what what industries are looking for so all right i want to switch gears and talk about the big picture now um i want to go with some more kind of uh, open questions here can we talk about what the top three things are that you've learned through your entire animation journey thus far oh my goodness um i feel like i, I sh- smacked you in the face with that one What of the top three things? Um, Could be anything, anything. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you know what's funny? I ask, I ask this of everybody I interview, and now that I'm put on the spot, I now understand what I put them on the spot. Sweet payback. <laughs> payback. What are you getting payback for? Um, a huge thing is to listen to my gut. Um, going through school and pitching, etc. It's you're going to get so I've, I've gotten so much feedback from so many different people, you know, my family, my friends, the profs, my classmates, just reading things online of what something what makes something successful. And I've realized that when I rely too much on that, I create something that doesn't specifically internally connect with me. And I've realized that if something doesn't connect with what I'm doing, how do I put this? Something when I make something that really connects with something inside of me, it's more successful than if I try to make something that uh, is disconnected from inside of me, but I think is going to connect with other people. And I think there are ways of doing that. Obviously, in my business career, I was 100% doing you know, focus group research and buying millions of data points and like doing data trends to figure out what other people wanted and then creating products and services and writing articles and things specifically on my findings and now that i'm in an art career i've realized that it's it can be that but 
why am I doing this personally? If it's that, I would just go back to my other career. I need to, I feel like I'm going off track, but the biggest thing I've learned is that if I don't put some of myself into it, I'm not going to feel as proud of it. It's not going to be as big of a personal success. For, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. I think I, no, no, <laughs> I think it, that makes sense. It's more of a, like put passion into what you do. Is that kind of the gist or, or make sure that what you're doing is something that you can connect with? Yeah, I think the one of the big things is what is my reason for doing this? Um, and if the reason connects with me inside, then I will put my effort into it. And if it doesn't, then why am I doing this, I guess? Uh, let's just stop that point at that. The second thing. Oh, so with that said, though, are you are you saying that you should only pick projects that align with your interests or you're saying take on the project, but kind of make it your own? Yeah, the second one. And if you make it your own, you're going to try to make it success, as successful as the other person wants it to. Um, I think that first point is very convoluted, but it's it's basically always rely on your gut, I guess. Um, the second one, <laughs> the second one is to just keep pushing forward because you have no idea what's going to happen. You know, when I first started out into this journey, I still was against doing stop motion. I was thinking that I was gonna become a storyboard artist and just pushing myself and keeping at this journey has allowed me to uncover more of what I wanna do because I've been able to meet people who support me in different ways, encourage me in different ways. I've been presented with different opportunities and if I haven't, if I didn't keep pushing myself forward, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am now. I guess, I guess the, these are really bad points. My first one is rely on your gut. The second one is just just keep doing it no matter what. <laughs> no. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. No, no, I think that's copyrighted. Don't say that, actually. Okay. <laughs> just keep uh, uh, floating forward. Keep, um, keep, keep going. Keep going. And the third one is kind of rely on your gut. It's something I said before, but what's your reason for doing this? And I, I, I've realized that if I don't, go towards that reason i get more off track with who i want to be and what i want to accomplish in in my life and what i want to change about the world and i realized that when i hit that point at my previous job where i was like why am i doing this i'm not satisfied and when i discovered that reason why then i changed things up and it's really it's been really easy to go on autopilot because you know your mind just wants to feel safe and do the same things over and over again and so every once in a while, I like I have to stop myself and say, why am I doing this? And why is this important to me? And is this the right choice still? And saying that has led me to different opportunities and to do different things. And yeah. So basically, just keep propelling yourself forward through the water with your fins or arms. Okay, no. First one is listen to your gut. The second one is keep doing it no matter what, because okay. you'll get somewhere. And the third one is do it for the right reason the re and, and figure out why you're doing it. Nice. That was good. That was good. I feel like we both need a like a nap. Okay, next one. No breaks here. What is your animation dream right now? <laughs> My animation dream right now is to be in a stable place 
and not have to work my butt off so much. Define stable though. Like, what does stable look like for animation? Because it's it is an industry based mostly on, I would say, contracts. If that's fair. Yeah, I mean, there's salaries and contracts. Stable would just be to know what I'm doing in the next couple of months. Like right now, everything's up in the air. There's a lot of stuff. COVID. It's I'm sure COVID is changing everybody's stability right now. Um, I guess from a career dream, it's to work on creative things that I feel proud of. And whether that means I'm stop motion animating, I would absolutely love to direct a feature film at some point. That would be amazing. I have a story that I've been writing as a novel with a novel writing group for a number of years that I cannot wait to turn into a feature film. Um, it's, it's just to feel proud and accomplished and happy and excited and scared because I'd realized that being scared is part of the journey and it's okay. And if I'm not scared, I'm not doing something right um, with what I'm doing. So it's it's less tangible, a lot more abstract. It's just feelings. Feelings. Um, I support this this motion picture thing. I think it should be. I think it should be the silly duck wizard. I think it should be the silly duck wizard. And the prisoner of Quaxcaban. Okay, you you can be the head writer. And <laughs> I just made that up. I'm very proud. Okay, next. What advice do you have for listeners who are considering starting their own animation journey? Um, just do it. <laughs> uh, say yes to yourself. I, it I for me it was so easy to say no to myself. Like I told you about that big stop motion wall that I build up and as the years went by I just kept adding more and more layers and it got harder and harder to say yes to myself and it took like a lot of drastic thinking and deep diving to finally get that yes out of me and I think if you say yes to yourself right now when you're thinking about it you're gonna end up in a better place all right. Next. And by say yes to yourself, I mean, just go for it. Don't be scared. You're going to be scared no matter what you do. So you might as well just do it. It's a fair point. Fair point. Um, so you've been through a lot. It's been a journey. Um, there's certainly been some stressful points, lots of highs and lows. Can you give us your number one tip for how you look after your own mental health going through this type of journey? Oh, no. <laughs> um. I have to force myself to take breaks because, you know, in school, doing some side hustles, doing a podcast, I don't know what else I'm doing, etc. It's very easy to just do animation forever. So forcing myself to take a break is healthy and to take Moose for some walks during the day. Moose is my dog. He's currently looking at me and blinking. I think it's walk time. <laughs> it's probably walk time. Um I'm still not very good at that, to be honest. So I think it's, a, it's an ongoing journey for everyone. Yeah. All right. So now we've got some very cute questions from listeners. Um, so Terry posted on his Instagram asking people to, to send in their own questions. So we're going to cover some of those now. Uh, the first one that I have here is how do you come up with character designs? Um, I... I mean, this is tough for me. I don't know. It's a weird organic process where I just start doodling. Say I need to make a rabbit. I'll just doodle rabbits until I end up with a shape 
that kind of feels right, I guess. I'll do a lot of research into like artists. Uh, I have like a, a saved folder on Instagram of tons of art that I absolutely love. I'll go through that, find some similar things, try to sketch them out. And I just keep refining it until it feels, the thing I'm looking at feels right. Um, like how big the eyes are, how big the mouth is, how big the lo long the arms are. I don't know. It's just, uh, I keep pushing it until it just feels like it exists. And then when I get that feeling, it's done. It can't be touched. And if I touch it, it feels like a knockoff version of itself then. So it's just a feeling. And so that's kind of how you found your own style then, I guess. Like it's just whatever is the most you. Yeah. And I feel like my style just looks like a 1930s Fleischer cartoon with rubber hose. And obviously I grew up watching like Betty Boop and all those fantastic shorts that I absolutely love. So I'm sure there's some influence in there. Um, and also Ardman, there's influence from Ardman as well, but I don't know. I, yeah, sure. What is your favorite part about starting a new project? The best part is just digging into my imagination and just exploring what that's like. The heart, everything after that is just hard and ups and downs and hard work and mentally exhausting to like export this imagination that you have into a physical form. Um, so that's the best part. And then the second best part is the, the like millisecond before I hit send out into the world or post or like give it back to the person who's requested it from me. Um, it just feels really thrilling. And then as soon as I click send, I get this like big depression come on me all at once where then I think, oh no, there's a million problems with this. They're not going to like it. What have I done? I should have changed this thing. Um, so <laughs> yeah. All right. The next question we have is what was or is the most memorable podcast interview moment that you've had and why? Oh man, this is hard because I get something different out of each podcast that I do. I think looking back, uh, the most memorable one for me was the one I did with um, Jackie Davis, who's called Underpants and Overbites online. She runs a watercolor comic about her life in Rochester, New York. And the reason is because I started my 365 day watercolor comic around the same time that she started her watercolor comic journey on Instagram as well. And we had kind of uh, gotten in touch through various points and and like met, like talked online and encouraged each other through our journeys when nobody knew who we were and we didn't know what we were doing and she's ended up in her own success now which has been amazing to watch and you know I'm in school etc um, which has been fantastic as well and just hearing all the struggles that she went through and what it took for her to figure things out was just it felt full circle for me and kind of like I'd been on the journey with her and we just had a really nice down-to-earth chat about how shitty things can be, how exciting things can be, how scary things can be, what are we even doing with our lives, and at the same time just feeling content and satisfied with what we're doing with our lives and how we come to these points. All right, the next question, I like this. So after interviewing more than 100 people from all parts of the animation world, what are some things that they all seem to share in common? Yeah. Um, it's funny because it's like one of the big things is that nobody has the same path, but that's something that everybody has in common. Everybody has to figure out things in their own way. And some people, you know, might seem more streamlined where 
their parents were supportive from a young age. They went to art school, then they went to uh, art college, then they got an internship and, and then they got a job. And that's like the established path. But even in that, there's so many ups and downs and emotional uh, and traumatic experiences and, and fears and having to figure things out along the way. And then there's other people who um, like were a bicycle mechanic, met somebody at a party, realized that this was a career, spent three years drawing every single day until they passed a storyboard test. And then uh, I'm talking about Ronald Standages. He's one of my first interviews. That was his path. And it's totally different. And everybody has a different way in. It's kind of like a common experience. But then the thing about that is everybody that's in the industry kept going no matter what, like whatever challenges that they had to move away, they had to live at their parents' house, they had to, you know, go into massive debt, they had to uh, go through some failures and get fired, like, etc. Everybody pushes forward, no matter what. And so um, that's one thing. And I think I think the second thing that also comes out of that that a lot of people have told me about is just luck. It's they were at the right place, right time, they knew the right person. There's no guarantees. It's not like, you get this skill, then you get this job, you pass this exam, then you're part of the club. It's uh, everything is like based kind of on luck. And I think that is probably a similar experience that people in artistic and music, it's film industries have experience with. I feel like that's both scary and inspiring, knowing that it's, it's, it's luck based and you kind of have to be in the right place in the right time. But but I guess also it's about where you put yourself, like what you show up to, uh, like what you show interest in, I guess. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last one. Last one. If for whatever reason you could no longer animate, let's say you are now allergic to clay nation, uh, what would you do instead? If I couldn't animate? I mean, that's a fear of mine. I have like random moments from like, what if I crush my hand and then i can't animate anymore i don't know what i'm gonna do use your feet animate with my feet honestly oh gosh i don't know i i think i would figure that out if i got to that point when i got to that point um i don't know what else answer there is i don't know i would do something in animation i think it's obvious that you would become yourself a duck wizard okay all right okay is that your last question Yes, that is it. And I don't remember how you normally answer or, or sorry, end the podcast. <laughs> so thank you for coming on, Terry. Thanks for being on my podcast. Uh, you can send the royalty checks to our address because we live together. And otherwise, you have a great night. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye, I guess. Okay, bye. <laughs> Music for this podcast was composed by Will Farmer and the graphics by Daniel Abensauer. I encourage you to look them up if you enjoyed their work.